Hey everyone, it's Richard Harrison, Scott Lease. We're here with another exciting episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. Uh, we want to give a quick shout out to Lead411, Gong.io, and I think that's who we have for November. So uh, I think we have a couple more in the works, so stay tuned. But more importantly, not that our sponsors aren't important, but we have someone who's going to grace us with some wisdom of uh, it's Amy Franco, sales strategist, top LinkedIn voice, author of The Modern Seller. Um, so, Amy, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, guys. Good to be here with you. Yeah, thanks, Amy. So, when you know, Amy, just from a context perspective, like, can you give the thirty-second? You know, I've done this in my sales career. I've done this, and now I'm doing this. And here's here's how I'm helping people. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so the first 10 years of my career, I grew up in tech. So I worked for companies like IBM and Lenovo and all client facing sales related roles. Uh, so that, that was the, the first 10 years. And then I decided to take a big pivot uh, about 14 years ago into entrepreneurship and uh, actually started a learning and development firm. So working with all different kinds of organizations on uh, learning initiatives. I have since uh, pivoted back into the sales space, which is where I love to be and where I grew up. And so now what that looks like is I work with mainly mid-market organizations in uh, professional services, technology, and I help them with sales strategy. I help them with that uh, sales skill development. So that's where I get to spend my days and I absolutely love it. 14 years in, what, what advice can you give somebody like Richard, who's been doing it for I think eight years now, and uh, somebody like me who just finished my first year. As an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when I started, when I started my learning and development firm, it was 2007. So I was blissfully unaware of what was coming around the corner in, you know, 2008, 9, and 10. Um, I, I think that there, there is a certain amount of you've just got to get out there and do it. You can plan and plan and plan. And I'm a planner. But you have just got to be able to get out there and take action and course correct. And that doesn't change. That hasn't changed for me in 14 years. I strategize, I plan, I put frameworks together. But there is just, you've got to be able to embrace uncertainty and you've got to be able to, you've really got to be able to live and thrive in it and, and be okay with it. And I think it's going, that uncertainty is going to just keep accelerating. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Scott and I were changed, having this conversation because I'm the over planner and Scott's way more a little bit shoot from the hip, but he has an idea where he's going. And agile. I'm more agile, Richard. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, more agile. But Scott's point was, you know, just get up and go, right? Like get it, get it to a certain point, go with it, and then just adjust as you need, right? As I will sometimes over engineer and try to strive for a little bit more perfection than is necessary. Uh, and Scott's been coaching me on this for years, um, and I slowly come around, but every now and then it'll, it'll rear its ugly head, and Scott's like, what are you doing? Just go. Just go. Well, I can totally relate to that. I, I launched, um, I, I work with companies uh, on the skill development side of the house. Um, I have a strategic selling program that, that I work with a lot of clients on. And my, my pandemic project, if you will, was to um, take what was done in person, you know, me jumping on planes, working with clients in person and taking that whole thing and creating it fully digitally. And there are so many moving parts that go into do 
doing something like that, that you just don't really know or can't always plan for until you're sitting right in the middle of it. But kind of Richard, to your point, I had to get to a point where it's like, all right, stick a fork in this thing. It's done get it launched. And now, now that it's out, I can fine tune, I can make changes, I can add content, but at least it's out there. So I can totally relate to that. What, what things did you do kind of immediately in response to having to make this shift to your business in, let's say March and April that you've since course corrected and improved upon and or thrown out and be like, why the heck did I do that? you know, at the beginning, right? Yeah. You know, as I kind of think back on this year, it, the, the first quarter, the first quarter of the year, you know, January through March, you know, business still held pretty steady. Um, I think at that point in time, it wasn't at a point here, at least in the States, it was happening, you know, in other parts of the world for anybody who's watching or listening to this globally. It had hit other parts of the world first before it hit here. And it really wasn't for me anyway until the second quarter, April, May timeframe where so many things bottomed out. And I bet you I got, oh, I don't even know how many phone calls and emails from clients at that point in time, either needing to postpone or cancel or renegotiate or whatever it was. And I think at one point in time, I probably had about 80% of my business just drop out in about a week's time. And there's, there's no amount of preparation for that. It, you know, I had, a, I had a balanced book of business. I had some pretty good diversification going, but it was just the, the bottom fell out. Um, so after maybe a week or two of feeling sorry for myself, just like any good entrepreneur, it's like, all right, you got to figure out what to do next. You got to pick yourself up. You got to dust yourself off and you have to, you have to make forward progress. So, so for myself, the, the big forward progress was, or probably the big light bulb moment for me was really needing to diversify from all the things that I did that depended on being in front of people in person. I had to completely redefine all of that. And I had done a little bit of that, but this pandemic just put the pedal to the metal and having to just make all of it happen. So, so now where I'm at, you know, fast forward six, six or seven months, um, you know, several clients have come back around. They have finally figured out like, hey, we're gonna be in this for a while, probably at least for 2021. We still have to move forward as an organization. We, we have to make forward progress. So I've had clients come back around, but I would say to kind of come back to your question, Scott, what, what am I keeping and what am, what am I maybe getting rid of? I am absolutely keeping all of the things that I'm doing digitally and I'm doing in these virtual environments like Zoom because I am finding my clients are, it's working for them. It is working for the vast majority of them. And um, probably what I'm going to not get rid of, but really just be more thoughtful about is how often do I have to be traveling in order to really take care of my clients and grow new clients. So, so those are some of the things that are on my radar to, to keep and, and get rid of. And I have a planning session uh, coming up in November where I just take some time away and I work on the business for next year. So I'll, I'll kind of daydream and brainstorm up what I want 21 to look like. What, what have you been working on in your skill development to improve and, and not just survive, but thrive towards the latter half of this year and into next year? Yeah. Um, I'm really curious about that. Yeah, so, so for myself, I, 
I, I took a little bit of time off earlier on in the year from making a lot of, of investments. And so whether it was the you know, professional development for myself or in, you know, investments in the business, because what I didn't want to do was make like really like emotional type of decisions. I didn't want to stop doing something or start doing something in the midst of all of this chaos going on. Because I find for myself anyway, I need a certain amount of uh, calm in my headspace and in my environment to, to feel like I'm making good, good decisions. And once I've made a decision, I'm good with moving forward. But there was so much chaos. It's like, all right, let's just take a step back, let a little dust settle, and then, then figure out what to do. Um, but in terms of myself for professional development, I, um, I have some coaches that, that I invest in that I've continued to invest in and get my own, uh, my own learning and development. I have an executive coach that I work with here locally, who's also an expert in um, behavioral science, like she has a PhD in behavioral science. I meet with her regularly just to help me keep my, my headspace straight and my headspace clear. So I have definitely continued to invest um, in those professional development areas. But I've also tried to create some more space. Um, I am someone who will pack my calendar and I've tried to consciously create a little bit more space in my calendar and just saying, you know what, this, this is a crazy year allow a little bit of space in so that I can do, do some good planning for next year and, and to really feel like I'm thriving. So, so those are some of the things that have helped me. How many, how many coaches or, and, you know, some could be in the you know, professional capacity versus, hey, it's just a good friend capacity. How many do you have? And what are the things that each one does for you and supports you? Yeah. So I would say formally, I, I have two. I have one that I follow more. Um, I follow more online. Um, Alan Weiss is someone that I follow online, and I've taken. He's in the consulting space, and I, I've taken a few of his programs. So I would consider that to be more of a of a, of a formal type of relationship because I've I've taken some of his programs. I have a coach here locally that I mentioned, um, and then I also have um, I also have a couple of other. You know, if you've ever heard it referred to as your kitchen cabinet, I, I have a group a group of group of like minded friends where we kind of mentor each other informally. We get into a Zoom maybe once a month or every other month, and we, we just talk about certain things that, you know, what's going on in life? What are the goals that, that you're lo looking toward? And just as a quick example from my own life, one of the future things that I want to be doing is more uh, board service. Uh, I do nonprofit board service right now, and then I want to grow that and do you know, private company, private private company board service in the future. So I have a group of like-minded friends where that's what we brainstorm on and help help each other out with. Um, in addition to just just helping each other out personally. So I do have a few of those informal. I'd say one informal group, and then a couple of other just individuals that we bounce ideas off of each other. Service mean for those who are not familiar with the term. Oh, you broke up a little bit there. Can you repeat that? Yeah. What does the board service mean as you talk? Oh, about yeah. That? Yeah. Sure, sure. So, um, so I am the board chair of uh, Girl Scouts of Ohio's Heartland, and uh, probably most people listening in are, have at, are at least familiar with Girl Scout cookies, so you know who the Girl Scouts are. But um, Ohio's Heartland serves uh, 30 counties in central and southern Ohio, and we serve uh, 18,000 18, girls. 
And so I am the board chair and you know, part, part of my role is uh, working with the CEO and helping to lead the, the initiatives for, for the council for the foreseeable future. Um, so board service for me is uh, at this point in time, it's serving on a nonprofit board or people could serve on nonprofit committees. And then uh, for others, they are serving on maybe private company boards or advisory boards. Um, I'm also on the advisory board for the sales experts channel. So, so those are, those are my two, my two volunteer uh, board, board roles. And then other people uh, do, it's, it's, it's paid gig. They, they are paid, uh, paid to be on boards of directors. What, where did, where did your desire for sales come in? Were, were you the Girl Scout who hit the, the cookie challenge every year or, you know, where did you decide you liked sales or, or grew up with it? No, I wish I was the Girl Scout who who hit the who hit the cookie sales every year. I didn't actually grow up in Girl Scouts as a kid. I you know didn't come into Girl Scouts until I was an adult and I was asked to, asked to be on the board. But um, you know, I think sales and leadership they've always been in my DNA. I am I'm the oldest of five. I have four younger sisters, and there's a ten year age difference between me and my youngest sister. And so I think leadership kind of running the show a little bit has always been a part of my DNA. And um, I was actually introduced to sales when I was in college. Um, when I was in college, they didn't have all these great sales schools like they do now. But um, I was introduced to sales as I was an intern at a local technology company while I was in college. I answered phones. I was kind of the gopher of the office and uh, just, just did all kinds of different stuff. But I got to meet all the salespeople. And I absolutely loved hanging out with them. I loved their energy. I honestly loved the fact that they got to leave the office and go on appointments <laughs> every day. And uh, I also worked in a real estate office when I was in um, high school and college. And that's a very entrepreneurial environment as well. So I was introduced to some of those things early on. I think that kind of fed my, my passion for sales. And then I landed my first job in inside sales right out of college. And that was, uh, it was not planned. It was you know, kind of some, uh, you know, a, ha a happy accident. That's what landed me in Columbus. Got my very first job working in inside sales for an IBM reseller, which ultimately led and for an opportunity for me to go work at IBM. So it, all the pieces kind of fit into place. But, but I think it was instilled in me young and then uh, just the right opportunities came along and I stuck with it. And when you said the energy level, right? Like you, you like that. What does that mean for you? Was it the competitive spirit? Was it the, um, I get to command my own destiny? Like what were those things for you that really sort of drew you in? Yes and yes. I, I am definitely a competitor at heart. I played a lot of sports as a kid growing up. So that I have that competitive fire and absolutely love that about being around salespeople and being exposed to that a little bit earlier on in life. Um, I also love being with clients. I, I really like spending my time with customers. It was one of my favorite things in working at IBM and working at Lenovo and, and even now. I love being with my customers and I love helping them to brainstorm solutions to their problems or brainstorm solutions to you know, an opportunity that they're going after. I, I feed off of that energy and problem solving and, and helping people to, to move to next. 
Um, if, if either the two of you ever done uh, strength finders, are you familiar with that at all? No. Yeah. So, um, so there's an assessment called strength finders, um, uh, Cliff Clifton strength finders, I think it's called. Well, and I, did, it, I did do that. Strength finders 2.0. I did do that. I yeah. Did. Yeah. I've never done it, but I, I would probably fail it because I seem to fail all of these tests that predict whether you're good at sales or not. No, I, it, you, you won't fail this one. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, there's, there's 34 strengths that, that you get, get um, you take an assessment on. And what was, in, what was interesting about it is um, it, it's not that uh, you're strong at something and, and weak at another thing. It's the things that you're naturally strong at. You can do the other things. It just takes more of your energy. And you know, what are the things you're naturally strong at? Well, one of my natural strengths is um, being futuristic and being strategic. So, so those are two, two of my top five. Um, so when I get to do those things with clients and help them look into the future, even though it looks a little murky right now, and I can help them strategize and, and help them build, build skills, that stuff just lights me up and, and I love doing that with them. What, what's like the hardest thing that you've um, tackled with a client in the last, uh, call it nine months beyond Ooh. just, beyond just, you know, um, you know, how do we sell remotely or maybe how do we onboard somebody remotely? I'm trying to, I'm trying to get an answer out of you that is less obvious um, and maybe, and maybe unique. Yeah. That, that's maybe not as much uh, obvious as pand pandemically related. <laughs> yeah. Well, even if it's pandemic related, but like a unique wrinkle on it of some sort, what's the first thing that comes to mind that's been a, a really difficult kind of challenge that, uh, you know, maybe has taken you a little longer to come up with an answer for, to, you know, along with your, your client? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got, I've got a couple things maybe that, that come to mind that we could dig into a little bit. Um, so, so as I mentioned, I, my primary audience, I work with a lot of professional services, which is, a, which is broad based. It could be, um, uh, I have some public accounting clients. I have some clients that are in, um, in technology and management consulting. Um, and that, then I also have, uh, I have some inbound clients and, and I have an inbound client. They, they came to me through my website and they are, they're in manufacturing materials handling. And, uh, like lots of folks in that space, this has been a really, really challenging year for them. And of course I was talking to them right before all of this hits and, um, you know, we, this was the first time as a company that they were really investing in formal learning sales training for their team. You know, they've been, in, they've been in business for, for several decades and they're extremely successful. Um, but one of the things I had to help them work through was the decision-making process and the rationale to, you know, put forth a considerable amount of budget to invest in their people and to invest in professional skill development for their people. And then you kind of throw the wrinkle of the pandemic in, into it and having to really um, help them think through their decision process and ultimately help them to see the value and have the, the courage to say, you know what, we're in a tough time right now, but we really have to double down on our people and we have to invest in them. So, so that's, pro that's probably one that really sticks out to me that I had to help them work through was the combination of this wasn't necessarily something they had ever done before to invest in their teams. And then you layer on all the pandemic stuff on top of that in helping them, helping them to see that through. 
So what are the advice you give them, right? Because I think this happens in real sales, right? Not that that's not real sales, but like in the, in the, the, you know, rep to um, prospect environment of like, you're, you're working to encourage them to take a risk on something they've never done before, right? Whether yeah. they're buying a CRM like Salesforce or Zoom or, or buying a training service. Um, I, I mean, I, I picked up on exactly what you said is that it actually sounds very similar, but we might overcomplicate it and we might let COVID overcomplicate it. So what are the barriers you help them get out of their own way? And, and more importantly, any particular tactic or suggestion you could give to people on here's how you encourage people to take risk. Yeah. So even if you take, take the pandemic out of it, um, there was still the needing to have the courage to take the risk to make the investment. Right. So, so what, so kind of how it unfolded was I, I was working with a couple of the leaders in the organization. And then I also had to present to the CEO of the organization and really what it came down to was I'd say a couple, a couple of they're, they're basics, but I think they're things that we often forget to do as sellers, which is um, I'm not a big fan of the phrase overcoming objections. Um, I'm not here to over, I'm not here to overcome you. I'm, I'm here to listen to what you have to say and what's on your mind and really kind of take that to just really take that to heart and really listen um, so that we could say, all right, if these are the things that are on your mind, what if let's talk about, let's kind of brainstorm together how we can work through each of these. And I would have a couple of ideas. They would have a couple of ideas. And then together we would kind of figure out what, have, have, have we kind of solved for that concern? Have we put the things in place that would help to mitigate the risk as much as possible? Um, so that was one way that we worked that, that really helped because it was very collaborative. And you knew that they wanted, they wanted to be able to say yes. They, they, were, they were in it and they wanted, wanted to do it. They just needed to have some of these concerns uh, allayed. But then the other thing is, many times, I don't know if you guys run into this or not, but it'll say, well, how can you take all the risk out of this for me. It's like, well, I really can't because at the end of the day, your people still have to, they have to do the work. They have to be bought in. I could tell you six ways to Sunday to, to do these five things, but if you don't do them, you won't see the results. So part of it was they really had to take on themselves as leaders to say, we're gonna, we're gonna hold ourselves accountable and hold our teams accountable to actually doing the work. Um, and then lastly, you know, I just kind of, I just, we were in, we were in a, in a go-to meeting or a Zoom and I just looked at him and I said, listen, at the end of the day, my reputation is more important than anything else. If there is something that you are not happy about, you come to me and we'll fix it. If you feel like this has not been a good, valuable use of your time, you come to me and we'll figure out what the, what the value is. And, and that, that really helped them to say, all right, she's as invested as we are we can move forward together. I've never heard anybody else say they're not fond of the phrase overcoming objections. That's no. the first time I've heard it. So it makes me want to ask you my next question, which is what other contrarian beliefs about sales might you have? Oh, let's see. Um, I don't know. Maybe the phrase always be closing. <laughs> I don't feel like that's as contrarian anymore. I think everybody is sort of like, yeah, right, right. That, oh. that would have been true like 10, 
15 years ago for sure. Yeah, that's, it's, it's probably a little cliched now. Yeah. yeah. Boy, but the, I'm not, I don't know. The overcoming objections one, I've, I've, I don't know if Richard has, but I've never heard somebody say, eh, I don't really like that phrase. I understand your, your explanation, but is there anything else that you um, kind of think differently on? Like, I don't know, is there a particular, like everybody talks about video prospecting, for example, right now. Is this yeah. something that you're like, nah, you don't need to do that. We talked to somebody the other day who said that they have been actually pitching on their LinkedIn connection request. And Richard and I were like, what? No, like you, this is not at all what you should be doing. And this guy was like, no, it actually is working for me. And here's how huh. I'm doing it. And I, I was like, oh my God, more power to you, I guess. But I, I, I couldn't disagree more. So. Because I, I would be with you. The yeah. the pitching on the LinkedIn requests, I my first inclination is delete, and yeah. then I will delete. I've had this happen a few times recently. I will delete, and then if they they keep coming, I just I just un, uh, uh, disconnect. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know the video prospecting has been interesting. I I really I like experimenting with with new ways to connect with people, and uh, video is something that you know, probably in the last year, year, year and a half, I've just had to become a lot more comfortable with. Um, so I've actually incorporated video prospecting into what I'm doing right now. But it, it's just, it's, I also do do other things. So it's not just one thing that, that I'm, I'm all in on. But I, li I like the video prospecting and at least trying it and experimenting with it. So let, let's go back to LinkedIn for a second. Because yep. you, um, have on your profile LinkedIn top sales voice. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what that is, nor how one achieves that. So how did, how did you, how did you win that? And what, what is your strategy in particular uh, in utilizing LinkedIn? So I, I wish I could say that I had some grand strategic plan that got me to LinkedIn's top sales voice. It actually was an invitation that I got from the folks over at LinkedIn to apply for it. So it was kind of a nice, uh, kind of a nice email to get get one day. It was around this time last year. So I got an invitation to apply for it. Um, but my LinkedIn is my platform that I spend all my time in. Um, I am on, I am on Twitter and I spend some time there. I don't do much with with Facebook, much to the chagrin of my marketing agency, my ad agency. <laughs> um, and I don't, I'm not, I'm on Instagram personally, but not professionally. LinkedIn is like where where I spend all my time. So for myself, I really try to be thoughtful and intentional with it. I don't have grands like prospecting like like the guy that you were talking about that sends all the connection requests with with the prospecting my goal is to be out there very consistently proactively sharing ideas whether it's written or video and proactively it really trying to intentionally respond and engage with other people like trying to write something thoughtful to comment on their post i'm um, trying to be out there very 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 regularly so i would say my linkedin strategy is pre pretty pretty organic in terms of just trying to build good relationships and then when i there are those opportunities or somebody follows me or connects with me and i'd like to extend that connection 
proactively reaching out to them and offering offering time to connect and, and giving them a couple of dates and times to put on the calendar. So I would say my, mine is definitely more um, low. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, it's 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 kind of high touch, low scale, if you will. Gotcha, gotcha. And you and you, I'm thinking about how you um, like putting content out there, putting it together, written form, and all this. You, I want to hear about your your book. Uh, I want to know about the modern the modern seller. Can you tell us a little bit, a little synopsis of what the book was about and um, yeah. the process of, of writing it was? I've been trying to give Richard, I have been giving Richard grief forever to uh, <clears throat> try to finish his book, and uh, <laughs> I should be nearly. I'm nearly done with my second book, and the second book has been hell by comparison to the first one. Um, oh my gosh! I want to hear about about your book and what the writing process was like. So, so I'll start with the process part first, um, and I'll start with the story. Uh, do we? Do, are you guys familiar with Dan Pink? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, pretty much everybody knows who Dan Pink is. Well, Dan Pink grew up in Columbus, and he grew up in a town here. Um, Bexley is is the name of the town. So. Whenever he, my understanding is that whenever he puts out a new book, he comes back here to Columbus and he comes to his old high school. He partnered with his last book that he launched, which I think was 2018. He partnered with a local bookseller to you know, promote the book and to, to help a local bookseller. And he comes back to his high school and he comes to teach the students writing whenever, whenever he's back, which I think is such a neat give back for someone who is as wildly successful as Dan Pink. But the other thing he does, and this leads to the process, process question that you asked, is he gives, uh, he gives his, I, I think it's probably the early stages of his keynote, I would guess, but he gives it at his high school auditorium. So you could buy, you buy a book, you buy a, a, a ticket that benefits the, the local bookstore, and he comes and he, he gives a keynote. So somebody asked him about his book writing process. How do you pick your topics? How, how, what is this like for you? And he basically echoed, Scott, what you just said. And it is like, I pick topics that are really interesting to me because, and I don't remember the words that he used, but essentially I pick topics that are interesting to me because it, the, the writing process can be so miserable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for two, two, you know, two, three years, however often he puts out a book. I mean, it's, you it's, are just in the too, thick of it. Yeah, if you're writing about something that you're not super passionate about, it's just too easy to give up and just, and just throw it away and be like, why am I doing this? Totally. You know, especially, totally. especially if you're not somebody who's going to sell, you know, hundred thousand, two hundred, five hundred thousand, a million copies, right? Right. You're you're not getting a million dollar advance on, on your exactly. book, right? Exactly. So 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 this is so, so kind of putting this in context. I launched my book in October of 2018. So this is the early part of 2018, and I can't tell you what a relief it was to hear someone like Dan share that. And it's like, okay, so this is why for the last 20 months of this project or however long it had been, a year, I have just been on this like up and down roller coaster of, I love writing this book. I hate this book. When's this book going to be done? Oh, I'm so happy. I've got another chapter done. It just puts so much into context about the process that, that an author goes through to write the book and how tough it can be and how isolating it can be. Um, 
so, so that just helped me to actually stay disciplined and motivated to push it over the finish line. Um, but uh, just very, very uh, a brief synopsis of the book is, is I was working with clients and, and, and doing my thing with sales strategy and, and skill development. I started to think about, you know, we talk a lot about the activities that you have to do, you know, very consistently. You have to prospect, you have to be able to present, you have to be able to negotiate, you have to be able to, you know, push uh, deals over the finish line to, to close and earn business. Um, those, are, those are things we have to always be doing. But what was starting to emerge for me is some, uh, some skills behind the skills, which, which tapped into my, the sort of learning, learning and development, uh, this learning and development side of me. And I started thinking about what are the things that we have to build kind of underneath as the foundation to help us be better at these skills that we do every day. So, so that was part of the catalyst of the book in, term, in terms of the topic. And um, so what I landed on after, after researching and just after thinking about my own journey, there, there are five capabilities that a modern seller has to have. You have to be agile. So Scott, you already touched on that one. You have to be entrepreneurial. You have to be a holistic. You have to be social. And you have to be an ambassador. And there's, there are there's a mindset component to each of those, um, but there are some, you know, there are skill components to each of those. Those are things that we can build and get better at, that when we work on those, it helps us to be better at everything else. So, so that, was, that was a bit of the catalyst for writing the book, and that, that's what the book is about in, in a nutshell. Wow. Those are, uh, those are really five really good categories. Richard, which one of those five are you weakest at? Um. As social as I think I am, I think it's my weakest, right? Like I, I still seem to, I think I try too hard, right? Which I think Scott, you know me well enough to say, yeah, that might be right. Um, but better yet, Scott, what are the five that, what is the one that you think I'm weakest at? Like, give me some, some feedback. What, oh, you're the weakest at agility. <laughs> He's like, sure. see Richard, you're not even smart enough to answer that question. <laughs> you, like you got that one wrong, even. You got that one wrong, even. I, I, I don't, which one am I the weakest at? I'm the weakest at uh, holistic probably would be my guess. There's just some things that I just can't be bothered with. So I, yes. don't, I bring I in, think that's where we bounce. In, I bring in particular approaches because I'm like, eh, you know. Yeah, well, as you, every now and then you love to say I hate people. So, you know, that's where the holistic <laughs> piece. <now>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and I don't know if this would be, be a contrarian conversation for you guys or not. I'll, I'll share with it and uh, you can let me know. So uh, you guys know uh, Anthony in Reno? I know that. Yes, I, know, I know the name. Oh, I don't know him, but yeah. I know the name, yes. So, so, so Anthony's a Columbus guy as well, and uh, I've known him for a few years. And uh, I was on his podcast right after the book launched. Um, and so he, you know, just kind of, skimmed it and was asking me some questions about it. And he's like, so tell me about social. I want to hear about social. And I said, well, I said, from my vantage point, um, you know, you are never going to see social capital on the P on a PNL statement of an organization, but people and organizations that really get it, they understand the value of very strong strategic relationships. And they understand that relationships make a business successful it makes a seller successful and it's not about being a being the best social seller if you will but it is about being very strong at building 
strategic relationships. And he's like, I totally thought that you were going to go down the path of, you know, you have to be a, a social seller only. And I, he's like, I was totally going to challenge you on this, but you, you changed, you changed my thought process about it. And, uh, so, so I get that question a lot, you know, tell me what you mean by social. Does it mean social selling or does it mean something else? And uh, I see social selling as one aspect, one tool that can help us build relationships, but it really has to be about building the relationships. That's a great holistic than you, right? That's where she sees that holistically. So that's a great, that's a great explanation. <laughs> I operate that way. I think I'm just not smart enough to come up with that definition like that's really well well framed. Oh, thank you. What's going on? I want to know what's going on in Ohio. I had no idea there was all of these uh, visionary sales leaders in Columbus, Ohio. What's what's I, right? I you know I I feel well, really fortunate. That's the cool town. That's the Austin of Ohio. Well, there's there's all these smart sales leaders there, but where's all the uh, where's all the companies coming out of coming out of there? We need a Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, Columbus. Brand, so, brand so here's, Anton will be really pissed that I just said that. By the way. So, so here's the interesting thing about Columbus. Columbus is, so I've been here for 23 years. Um, Columbus is the 14th largest city in the country that nobody knows about. Columbus is the 14th largest city in the country? Yep. That's yeah. usually the reaction I get when... I have lost, we, we could have bet... A thousand dollars on that, and you would have taken my money. Yeah, it's, it's and Columbus is you know kind of to your point about the, the the Silicon Valley comment. Columbus is really starting to attract the VC and the high tech um, organizations, the startups, because of the the talent pool that that Columbus has built and the cost of living in Columbus. Yeah. Um, so you have you have companies wanting to come here and invest and you know i always say i don't want columbus to be the next silicon valley i just i want columbus to be the, the best columbus but uh there there's a lot of that type of growth happening here because people see the the talent pool that's here i guess you need to make your way back to ohio richard well, i can say you know the, the biggest thing i got i was in ohio for a year lived there for for one year um and the thing that i saw the most was the work ethic of people um, and I, look, I grew up in Macon, Georgia. I went to college in Arizona. I lived in Denver, Colorado. I've been in Ohio, lived in San Francisco. And to this day, nobody seems to have as strong of a work ethic. Show up, do your job, be done with your job. If you need to put a little extra in, you put a little extra in. And I think it does have to come back to that being part of the Rust Belt, right? That whole Detroit, Cleveland, Ohio, Buffalo area where so many people parents or grandparents you know, they met on the factory floors right like they literally worked the the second or third shift and that was just how their world worked and they came in and they did their job and they got paid and and i, I saw it get passed down through the generations because you know, i was hiring young kids i mean i mean you know scene magazine it was the cool hit paper before the internet right like this is where you yep. look to see what bar was going on what band was coming to town all that stuff and um so we were, of course, we were attracting that younger talent and, um, but their ethic just coming in was like, and their stories of like their family backgrounds and stuff was just tremendous. So I, I, I totally understand why that occurs there. Um, 
I, um, I, I, so I grew up in Cleveland and I still have family there. So, you know, I go back and forth between Columbus and Cleveland. And I could say, you know, for both of these, for both of the cities here, there's a really just a, a neat entrepreneurial vibe, renaissance, whatever you want to call it. But uh, a lot, a lot of opportunity happening here and a lot of opportunity being created, even in the midst of, you know, just the craziness of this year. And it, it's really gratifying to see all that happening here. So what, um, and we sort of need to start to move to, to wrapping it up, but it's been fascinating. And I love, I think my favorite thing out of this interview are, the, are those five key attributes. Um, before I sort of ask the final question, and I know you're probably getting this and everybody else is too, but what do you think are the skills that are still underdeveloped in salespeople, right? Particularly that maybe sort of might've gotten the spotlight shown on us a little bit more <laughs> from this year. Yeah. And then what can we do aside from, you know, hire a trainer? Yeah. So, yeah. So I've maybe put, there's probably two that I could, could focus on. Um, One is more, one one is agility for sure. And and I think of agility, it's mindset and skill sets. Um, The the Center for Creative Leadership did some research on, you know, what are the top, what are the top traits that organizations are hiring for? 25 years ago, the top trade an organization would hire for is technical expertise. How good are you at your job? How, how much technical knowledge do you have about your job? 2022, the top skill that organizations are hiring for is adaptability and versatility, which, which I personally put into the, I put it into the agility bucket. Um, so, so that is something, whether you're hiring people or you are figuring out what's next for you, that agility piece, I think, is going to be mission critical for success. Um, if I think about kind of the, the mechanics or the tactics, the everyday activities of selling, I would say right now the ability to have really strong value-based sales conversations. I think that has shown, the pandemic has shown a huge spotlight on that because when you're not meeting somebody for coffee or lunch or a happy hour and you are really focused on, you're sitting in Zoom like we are and you have 30 minutes and you're very focused on you know, the topic at hand, you don't have all those other distractions. And so your ability to build rapport, to have a valuable conversation, to add something of value to the person that you're with, I think the pandemic has shown a big, a big, a big white hot spotlight on that one. I could talk to you forever. Like, I feel like we just got past the surface with you and like we could have dove into those five examples and like, well, tell us an example of that. Tell us an example. What's it mean to be an ambassador? Um, so as well as those two skills. And I, I love that adaptability agile piece as well, which to Scott's point, I better start, you know, practicing a little bit more. Um, we'll Amy, just have to get, we'll just have to schedule this again. That'll work. That'll work. <laughs> Amy, how can we help you? You know, you've been so kind and generous with, with your feedback and support. Is there something we can do? You have a question, you know, maybe we could help you with or, or a call you want to support? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think what I'll, I think what I'll, I'll talk about something that I'm supporting right now, and then I do have a question for you guys. So I shared a little bit earlier that uh, I am, I'm the board chair for Girl Scouts of Ohio's Heartland. So I just, I like to share the message of Girl Scouts, you know, whenever I can, um, because, you know, I think the world needs, the world needs Girl Scouts more than 
than ever before, because our mission is to build girls of courage, confidence, and character who make the world a better place. And we're doing some very cool things to help build our, our future, our future girl, girl leaders of today into the, into the women leaders of tomorrow. So I just, just like to share that with anybody who is listening. And if you have any interest in learning about the Girl Scouts, you can, you can search that and, and learn a little bit more. Um, and then I think a question for you guys is in, in all of your, your travels with your clients and the work that you're doing, is there maybe something, a thing or two that's, that's really standing out that, um, that, that they're wanting to learn these days that, that's really top of mind for them? I'll go first. Rich, so Richard and I kind of operate um, in two different ends of the market. I don't do a whole heck of a lot of training anymore with with reps uh, or managers unless it's like private coaching mm -hmm. my my business is all about helping uh, companies scale from zero to 25 million so I'm sort of like the get off the ground guy um, the, the things that people struggle with in the first couple of years so they have just been trying to figure out like how do I tweak my messaging how do, how do we, you know, re-accelerate uh, sales cycles and, and timelines and things like that? How do we onboard and train and keep growing when we can't bring people into the office? Um, there's more options than ever, one could argue, when it comes to hiring. And so they're looking for advice on like how to hire the right VP of sales, which AEs to hire and that type of thing. So all of these, um, these are the kind of questions that are top of mind for entrepreneur and tech founders and, and things like that. And, and the salespeople that I'm interacting with and the sales leaders that I interact with, their biggest challenge is um, keeping their head in the game right now. Yeah. And, you know, that's because we're month nine or 10. And, and at the beginning it was like, holy shit, you know, shock to the system. And then it was, okay, I can do this for a particular amount of time. And then there was this like, oh, this is all right. Everything's cool. Like I'm in a good groove. And now it's like, I really just don't want to do anything anymore. I'm, I'm over it. And, and everybody's been like geared up to ride out 2020. Well, guess what? Like 2020 is almost over and this shit is not going away anytime soon. So nope. there's like this, there's an exhale going on, I think, where people are a bit fatigued. Richard, what about you? Yeah, yeah, I see it. Um, I see it along those lines, and it, the one word that comes to mind for me is accountability. And I think we see this every time there's a recession or something where you have to go through mass layoffs. Is that people have not been accountable for their own skill, right? They've found, you know, as Scott likes to coin, he's coined the phrase, the excuse factory runs 24-7. Oh, and, I love it. And, and accountability is the biggest thing. And what's interesting to me is that every time I bring it up to someone, all the managers, all the leadership, everybody completely goes, yep, yep, my reps aren't accountable, my reps aren't accountable. And I'll be like, great. After this training, how are you going to be accountable? And it's like deer in headlights because they don't know because nobody trained them. Like it's, it's not like I'm trying to call someone out, but it's like, how do we really instill accountability as a piece of the culture in a healthy way, not in a blameful, you're gonna lose your job way, right? Like I'm, I'm sort of going back to your, your five things, agile, entrepreneurial, 
holistic, social ambassadors and sort of that entrepreneurial ambassador piece for me feels like where accountability lies, right? Like there's, you, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're accountable. Like you, you got nobody else but yourself to blame, right? Which also is probably the most freedom part of it because then you can just sort of get over yourself in some cases. So the accountability piece is what I'm seeing and, and it's happening all the way through. And the managers are afraid to hold their reps accountable. And I'm like, why would you, like, that's what they want. Like that's coaching, right? Coaching them to be accountable and to teach them how to fish, you know, stop, stop pitching, you know, from on top of your soapbox about your war stories and teach them how to do this and teach them what that word means. And yeah, it's going to get nitty gritty and in some details, but that's the only way you learn accountability. So those are my two pieces or my piece. Um, well, Amy, thank you so much for giving us your time. We really appreciate it. So thank you guys. This was a great conversation. I will have to do it again sometime. I would love to, I would love to. And again, a big shout out to, to find them gong and uh, lead 411 our, our November sponsors. And I forgot to mention find them at the beginning, but uh, please go find them. So <laughs> well done. thanks, Amy. Thank you guys.